If you would like to turn with me in the copy of your scriptures to the sixth chapter of Isaiah, we will take our time here this morning asking the Lord to give us a vision to the eyes of faith that we might behold the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ and so be changed from glory to glory into his likeness. That is the way that we are sanctified. That's the way that we change is by beholding the Lord Jesus. It is in John's gospel that he reflects back upon this incident that what Isaiah saw in this passage was the Lord Jesus himself, Yahweh God, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'll read the, only the first eight verses of this chapter, very well known to you, and we will take some time to go through it here this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would send your spirit upon the preaching of the word and open up our hearts that we might with them receive the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of what is here written. That with ears we might hear, with eyes that we might see. Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts in this very hour that we would not be the same when we leave as when we came. We pray that this vision that we see of our God through the words of Isaiah in faith, believing the things that are herein written, would change us, would humble us, would address us in our state of humility, and that it would be the balm for our soul that we so long to have as we come before your presence with fear and with trembling, and also with joy and gladness. And we pray these things in the strong name of the Lord who sits upon the throne, who is the King of kings, the Lord of all who govern, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. You may be seated. 
I remember the first time that I left this country and went across the big Atlantic Ocean and landed in London, the first time I've set foot really on foreign soil. And on that very day, having been tired through the long night of travel, we were able to gather our things and check into our our facility and then went on for the rest of the day, gathering in a little bit that we could of the day that remained. 5.30 came, and it was time for Evensong at St. Paul's Cathedral. And the first time I've ever been in such uh, uh, a place as that. And I was overwhelmed as I went in, and the space enveloped me, and it quietened me, it hushed me, it, it influenced me, it, it had an effect, a profound effect upon me. St. Paul's Cathedral is a vast cathedral in the heart of London whose volume fills 5.4 cubic feet of space, whose height of the dome rises 365 feet, and standing underneath it and looking straight up 365 feet in the air, you have the top of the dome. Its vast size makes you feel small. The soaring height compels you to look up. The masonry construction and the volume of space naturally amplifies the acoustics for the business that went on there, the worship of God. The atmosphere gives a sense of transcendence. And cathedrals are specifically designed this way for a reason. The beauty and the size and the height of these large churches have an effect upon the human spirit that generates a sense of quiet awe. This was something that you have to experience that I cannot merely tell you with words. For some of you, you've had experiences like this. In our busyness of life, we too often focus on the things that are so down here. Today, I thought it would be good for us to stop and and look up. And this is what God would have to do with Job after he struggled for 37 chapters of this narrative and however long it took in his own chronology of life. With all of the difficulties that happened, he didn't have the background that you and I have from chapter 1 and 2. He only knew of the sufferings. He had lost all of his possessions. He lost all of his children. He lost his health. He was trying to figure it out. When God finally broke through and answered in chapter 38, he really didn't ask Job how he was doing. He didn't really reflect upon the sufferings he was going through. He just drew Job's attention upward to his wisdom, to his sovereignty. And with those rhetorical questions that he then pounded Job with, 
It began to have its effect upon Job. And he began to see the splendor and the glory and the omnipotence and the omniscience of the all-wise, all-good, powerful God. It was the only thing that was going to help Job. Even the answer why would not have satisfied. It was the, the vision of God and God speaking with him that would be the answer he needed. And so he had to refocus his gaze from his immediate context to call Job to look upward. I don't know what you may have come here struggling with this morning. Perhaps you're struggling with discouragement or some circumstances of life of which you're unsure. Maybe you're struggling with your health or something that you're worried about, some matter of anxiety or something that is causing some fear in you. And perhaps you've come with some relational problems or uncertainties of life of something that's going on. Maybe you're facing difficult circumstances. You're just not sure how you're going to get it through. Whatever it is, today we all need to look up to God and be reminded who He is. That's the only thing that's truly going to satisfy. When we get a glimpse of God and realize that who we are in the presence of His holiness, it will put everything in perspective. The psalmist learned this when he was lamenting about the, the wickedness in the world and he then went into the sanctuary and he says, oh, and then my reason returned to me. I saw God. It's my prayer today that we can all look upward away from our problems down here and see God today. Experience God today. I can't merely tell you about Him. Isaiah can't tell you about Him. But the Spirit of God can make this an experience that you can behold the glory of the risen Christ and never be the same. And that's my prayer. To experience Him today by seeing Him and hearing Him even in the affairs of heaven with the eyes and ears and the senses of faith. Our passage begins that Isaiah saw the Lord enthroned. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah is one of those prophets in, that we know as the major prophet simply because of the voluminous material that he prophesied. He lived a long life, and his life spanned over several kings of Judah, including Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. At the time in which he ministered, the national life of Israel was not healthy. And Isaiah would go on to have a very difficult ministry in his life when Israel was at one of their all-time spiritual lows. And this commissioning at the beginning of his prophetic ministry would be that which would carry him through for the years to come, that he would be the faithful prophet in the midst of a very difficult time. The passage begins when 
In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was one of the better kings of Judah. He was a good king for the majority of his life toward, until the very end. He began his reign when he was 16 years of age, and he reigned for over 50 years. There were many in his reign that knew no other king than Uzziah. 50-year reign is a, a long time. He had strengthened the, the military might of Judah. The Ammonites brought tribute to him and the kingdom, and his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, and he became exceedingly strong in the time of his reign. But when he was strong, toward the end of his life, his heart was lifted up in pride, and he transgressed the Lord by entering into the temple to burn incense upon the altar of incense, something that a king was not allowed to do. And when Azariah, along with 80 other of the valiant priests, went after him and rebuked him, he became enraged at them, and God smote him in that very moment when he confronted the priests who were bringing correction to his life. He smote him with leprosy. The priest then, seeing the leprosy, thrust the king out of the temple where he lived in isolation as a leper until his death. Oh, pray that you live not too long. And when this earthly and temporal king defiled the temple and, and then he died, the, the nation grieved and was in a national time of mourning. And there was great uncertainty in the land as far as what this leadership change would look like when the administration would change. Who would the new king, what would he be like? And there was great concern as well as lamenting. It's in this context that, that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on His throne in heaven. And when he says it's in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We notice here the, the word Lord is the capital L, but small letter O-R-D, which signifies the word Adonai. He saw Adonai sitting upon the throne in heaven. This particular form of Adonai is only used of God. The proper name of God would be Yahweh, spelled and noted in our translations with a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh is His name, but Adonai is his, one of His greatest titles that underscores His divine Sovereign majesty. And that is what Isaiah needed to be affirmed in in the time that the king of Israel died. It was truly the Lord who was living and on the throne. 
Earthly kings come and go, but God remains sovereign forever. Forever. And Isaiah saw the heavenly and the holy king in his temple enthroned. We notice how he saw him when it says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the Lord exalted. Exalted above and over all of his creation. After all, he is sovereign by divine right because it is his creation that he breathed into existence. The height of the throne, high and lifted up, emphasizes his infinite majesty and glory and his unique worth over all. And when something is high, it causes our attention to look upward. And that's what Isaiah needed. He needed to look up. And that's our greatest need as well. We need to look up. Not look around. Not look down. Not look inward. But to look up. That's our greatest need. And to see the Lord, ultimate sovereign, ruler over all, and to see Him and His glory and the majesty of His radiant holiness burning with fire. That was Job's greatest need. And we find in chapter 38 of Job and 39 and 40 and 41, it's satisfied. That's what's satisfied. It silenced him, but it's satisfied. And when the earthly king dies, the heavenly king, he's always there. He's always been there. And when the earthly kings are abased, know that our sovereign Lord is always exalted. He is always high and He is always lifted up. And He is always there. Now that Uzziah was dead, not even Isaiah knew the implications of the immediate future. And in certain times on the earth, the Lord is always on His throne. You need to know that this morning. And this is what God wanted Isaiah to see in the uncertain time in which he then lived. But what we... See him seeing. What did he see? He saw the imperial robe of God filling the temple, filling the volume, the volume of space. God's glory was visible to him, and it claimed all of the available space of the temple. As we find out later throughout all of the earth. God may choose to reveal His glory to some, but with none, He will share it. There was a time in Moses' life when the ministry was very difficult for him. And the path forward for Moses was uncertain. And, and Moses desired to see God's glory. And God informed him that no man can see the face of God and live. 
But nevertheless, Moses, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cause my backside to pass in front of you. I'll put my hand in, over your face, and when I move by, you can see my backside, but my face you cannot see. And so it happened that God did just that, and He showed him His backside, and He declared His goodness and compassion and His mercy. Then Moses in subsequent days, would then go up to meet with God and he would spend time with God. And when he came back down, he had been such in the radiant glory of God, just seeing his backside, that his entire being shone and his face was radiant with the glory of God, just reflecting the backside of the glory of God. And it caused the people to tremble by just seeing the reflected Glory of God's backside through Moses. And the people trembled. So he put a veil over his face so that he could speak with the people. And when he went up to God, he took the veil off. And when he came back down, he put it back on. Think about that. The people were trembling and seeing indirectly the backside glory as it radiated through Moses. They were not even getting the first-hand picture of it. So the sight that Isaiah was seeing here was indescribable. God's glory was impossible to define and it is impossible to describe. It is, in one sense, His utter excellence. His unique excellence. A one of a kind. There's nothing like it that can even be compared to it. No analogies would even suffice. To us, it has been described as the appearance of radiant light that emanates from Him. And great brightness. Blinding light, if you will. It is the presence of the fullness of God in all of His attributes, in all of His character, in all of His love, in all of His grace, in all of His mercy, in all of His wrath, in all of His judgment, in all of His righteousness. All of these things in His holiness, the radiant glory of God the likes of which no one has seen face to face. Isaiah was in heaven seeing this. And the next thing he saw was then God's attendant angels in verse 2. And we can always learn something about God by the creation that He has created. By observing His creatures. The natural revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God. Go to the ants, learn from her ways. But we can learn from the angelic beings that we behold. And here we see these heavenly creatures, these lofty seraphim. And a seraph is an angelic being who is an attendant to the throne of God's grace. They spend their time worshiping God and they are also seen to speak for God, and they serve God's people at God's bidding. And we have this angelic being of a mystery of sort, but as part of God's creation. And here is Isaiah seeing their splendor. 
He sees that they were specifically designed and created by their Creator for the very purpose that they were created in worshiping God around this throne. They had six wings. With two of those wings divinely designed in their makeup, they covered their face. Because God's holiness is such that even unfallen angelic beings made of a higher order than we cannot even look upon the face of God. With two of the the wings, they covered their feet. This was analogous to, to Moses being bid to take his feet off when he was in the presence of the burning bush because the The ground on which Moses stood was holy ground. And so there was a humility that Moses had to show and a respect. Human feet are made of clay. They are the connecting point to the earth from which they were made. And they are fit for this earthly realm. And Moses was bid by God to take his shoes off. Angels' feet are designed for the heavenly realm. And it's an act of humility designed in where they are fit for to cover them with their wings. And the other two wings, they were sanctified for them to fly. This was sanctified service of God as He sends them forth to do His bidding. They were equipped with the divine design to do that which they were designed and created for. We always see that there's a corollary for worship is service. As we come to worship the Lord, even this morning in the beauty of His holiness, we will then be sent out to do the Lord's service. Worship and service. That really is what we're designed for. And God had designed these heavenly creatures to worship Him in the heavenly realm and to serve Him in the heavenly realm. Man is also uniquely designed to worship Him and to serve Him in the earthly realm with eyes and ears and hands and voice. The next thing we see is Isaiah's ears would be invoked to hear the praise of heaven. And he heard one cry to the other, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies, is the literal translation. The whole earth is full of His glory. Not only was the sense of Isaiah's sight overwhelmed, but now so is his sense of hearing. For any human witnessing this heavenly scene, it was sensory overload. And what he heard was what was been called the trision. It is what the church has integrated into its musical liturgy around the supper of the Lord, of which we refer to as the Sanctus. And it is this holy, 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 three times, not two, not one, but three. Holy, 
Holiness is not easy for us to define here because it is something of which we are, are not this particular attribute of what we are seeing in Isaiah 6 is a holiness that is not communicated to his creatures. We are to be holy like God is holy, but that is in a different sense. That's moral purity. In this particular aspect, this is a transcendent attribute of God. The term holy means separate, to be set apart. It just means separate. Separate is Yahweh, separate is Yahweh, separate is Yahweh of hosts from all of His creation. He is Lord over all. That's the idea. It is a unique separateness. It is a transcendent separateness. It is a majesty and the glory, the likes of which we can never comprehend. It is of unspeakable Things that the eyes have never seen, nor ears heard, nor can we comprehend the ultimate holiness of Almighty God. There's something notable about this particular quality of God. It is used here with emphasis. Three times it is used. As the seraph would cry out to another with thunderous voice from one side of heaven to the other, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's a way that the Semitic language of Hebrew uses emphasis. We tend to use emphasis with grammar or punctuation like exclamation points. Or you younger generation with emojis. <laughs> or with GIFs, whatever you use. But sometimes we use qualifying words like good and better and best or more and most. But to emphasize something in the Hebrew language is to repeat it. Christ would use this idiom even in the New Testament when he says, truly, truly, I say unto you. And many times you would have an emphasis of repeating the same word which would bring it to a higher level of emphatic nature. But it's rare to have something repeated three times. One of those few occasions we find in Revelation 8.13, he says, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. It's a, it's a rare occasion when this is given a thrice emphasis. But what we hear in this chapter regarding God's holiness is very unique because no other attribute of God is re ever repeated three times. Only His holiness is here repeated three times. It's an attribute of transcendence, of distinctness, of uniqueness. It's heaven's song. It's heaven's worship. And it has a fearful quality to it. When we sing the Sanctus moments ahead, we sing with angelic choir that is already going on there, decrying the emphasis 
of the one true separateness of the one God. Holy, holy, holy. Not once, not twice, but three times. God's holiness is a uniqueness. It's, it's a separateness. Rudolf Otto, an early 20th century German scholar, referred to God's holiness as the mysterium tremendum. Translated, awful mystery. Full of awe. That's mysterious. Tremendum, awfulness. It does have an element of fear to it. Because of the fear that holiness provokes. It does fill us with a kind of dread. It is both a characteristic that, that attracts us and draws us. At the same time, it creates a particular dread or fear. It's a part of a mystery. I don't know that if you can ever imagine you being drawn to something that you're fearful of. Some people ride roller coasters and they're afraid of them, but they like them, so they get off of them and they go ride them again. There are many different occasions in our world that's kind of an anomaly that we are drawn to some things that are, 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 we're afraid of. That's a, a very weak analogy to be able to even express what we are drawn to at the same time what we fear. But we fear God because He is holy. He wanted us to know that when He said, and He approached on Mount Sinai, and He says, don't even approach the mountain, nor touch it. If you touch it, you will die. But the very fact that He was going to meet them there was a gracious act of wanting to fellowship with His people. But there was this thing called sin that was in the way. See, there's no doubt who Isaiah saw. He saw a king. He saw Adonai in the dime that Uzziah died. But there's no doubt who that king was because he is given the proper name. It was Yahweh. Yahweh of hosts. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He saw the great king Adonai, but clearly this great king Adonai was Yahweh of armies. The word host there is the word armies, literally. The proper name of God is Yahweh, the title of His sovereignty, Adonai. This is the one creator, the one true living God who is completely sovereign over all of His creation. Not a square inch or a molecule or atom over which He is not sovereign. Not even a part of man's heart or mind that He is not sovereign. He governs all of the affairs of men, nations, and kingdoms. And he always has. The next thing that Isaiah experienced is what he sensed in verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. What he saw was a sensory overload of sight. What he heard was a sensory overload of hearing. And now what he experienced brought fear into the very bones of his being. The place shook like an earthquake at the voice of the seraph who cried out. 
It's one thing to hear thunder afar off and the rumble. It's another thing to hear it close by, but it is quite another thing if you've been in this occasion when the lightning strikes so close, there is no time difference between the time you see the overwhelming flash of light and the time that you hear the thunder and you feel it shaking the inside of your bones. And in that instant when the flash of light goes and you hear the boom of thunder and you feel the shock wave in your body, at a moment you are filled, filled with terror. The adrenaline rises, the heartbeat goes up, and the breathing goes rapid, and everything comes so fast. It's just a sensory overload in an instant. By the way, God uses earthquakes and thunderstorms and tornadoes and hurricanes and all those things so that we can understand something about Him. His voice is like the voice of many waters. He speaks out of the whirlwind. His lightning strikes. His thunder roars and the earth quakes at His presence. He wants us to know in the world in which we live something of what He is like. Now imagine the experience of that thunderclap that came in an instant of time where it's gone in a moment, but now imagine that stretched out over some time, and you have to dwell in the presence of this sensory overload, and this thundering quaking, and this, this that is just rattling you from the inside to the out. And that's the picture we have here. Isaiah feels the place shaken. He sees the place filling with smoke. And he sensed that in his eyes and his nostrils, and it's not anything like what we've ever experienced with the noise and the smells and the sights and the, the overload. This is the realm of heavenly worship. For those who are united in Christ at this very moment, This is the place we are. The one thing it was doing for Isaiah in that moment, it was undoing him. You find in Isaiah 5, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So overwhelmed was his personal insignificance in the context of this. It was just tearing him apart from the seams and his fabric of his life was just being unraveled by this experience before God. He pronounces a woe upon himself. This divine judgment coupled with a deep sense of grief that we've been speaking about from Matthew 23 that Jesus is breathing upon the leaders of this divine judgment, this curse. Now Isaiah is prophesying and he is speaking. And when prophets speak the oracles of God, thus saith the Lord, when they do it positively, they preface it with blessed 
When they do it negatively, they preface it with woe. You've got covenant blessings and you've got covenant curses. And here was Isaiah pronouncing this woe upon himself because he knew he was completely undone. What in a shred of his being that was worthy to be in the presence of the Holy God. He was on the brink of ruin, doomed to die, terrified and startled in his self-evaluation as he realized who he truly was when he saw himself in the presence of God. When we see the Lord in all of His glory, and we can truly begin to see who He is, we begin to see who we are. And that view can be frightening. It can undo us. True humility is seeing yourself for who you really are while you're in the presence of God. That, that is... The key to the first three Beatitudes. Blessed is he who is poor in spirit, who mourns, and who is meek. This is properly seeing oneself for who he really is when he is in the presence of God. Every thought of pride relating to others, it relates to somebody else in some way. It elevates our mind and our thinking because we're comparing, our, comparing ourselves with others and we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But humility comes when we can see ourselves or who we really are when we see ourselves in the presence of a holy God. This is the illustration of Peter that we read about earlier. Jesus gets in the boat. He casts out. He's preaching to the crowds, and he gets finished, and then he tells Peter to cast back out and pitch your net on the other side. Lord, we've been fishing all night. There ain't nothing here. Nevertheless, at your will, at your bidding, I'll, we'll do so. Cast the net on the other side at the obedience of the Lord himself, and he couldn't bring up so much of the fish because there was such a harvest of fish. When he begins to see the reality of what just happened and who is this who am I? He falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is the experience of, of Habakkuk when he saw himself in the presence of God and he heard him. He says, When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at his voice. Rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself. He realized who he really was in the context of a holy God. This is Daniel, one of the few men that we hear of in the Scripture of which we don't have bad characteristics. But we know that he was of fallenness like we are. In the 10th chapter, it says his body that he saw, he, Daniel had this vision, his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his word like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision. 
But a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision. No strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. That's a person who has seen the holiness of God. All these men who saw themselves or who they were when they were in the presence of God, and it's putting the self in the proper place, and that is integral to putting God in His proper place. And while the terror of God's holiness overwhelmed them, then God gives grace to the humble. All those men that we read about, they lived. And that's what we see here. God gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is perched. And seeing the Lord, he, he saw himself for what he was. He was undone. And the nearer one draws to God, the more sensitive to sin, his own sin, that he is. And the sight and the hearing and the presence of a holy God, which is all inspiring, and he sees this. And when he sees it, he's never the same. When we see it, we are never the same. Isaiah lamented for his unworthiness and that he is of unclean lips. He's unqualified there to be there in heaven's praise. He cannot join his voice with theirs. His lips signified the filthiness of an entire being. Jesus clarified that for us when he says it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man for out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart are the issues of life. And so Isaiah's lips and his words which he speaks are indicative of his whole being. And next we see God's provision. The scene connects the place of sacrifice with the provision of forgiveness. The place of sacrifice with the provision of forgiveness. A hot coal from the altar of which the angel himself had to use tongs to pick it up. He takes it and puts it and applies it to Isaiah's mouth. It is a coal from the fire that God himself ignited. It is from the altar where Christ's life was consumed that we through that might be purified. And cleansed from our sin. And the burning heat that then seared the lips of Isaiah cleansed all of his filthiness right down to the core of his being. And he was cleansed and purified and made fit now for heaven's praise. He was finding himself undone and God comes and puts him together. The presence of God's holiness is a burning fire. It is a place of awfulness. For the humble who see God and see themselves for who they really are, God's holy fire is a purifying grace in their lives. 
It's that which we need. It's that for which we long. It's that which draws us to that holy fire. Because of the humble desire to be purged and made pure so that we can stand in the presence of this awful place and give Him the glory due to His name. The presence of God for His people is both a sense of terror as well as a sense of joy and peace. It is a a mystery how these two come together. It's a mysterious attraction that we have for this transcendent place where God dwells. But to the proud and the wicked, God's holy fire is that which judges them. It's the very thing that the righteous desire, the wicked fear. The eternal torment of hell is the sensory overload of God's wrath with His holy fire that burns hotter than angel can bear. The same holy fire that judges the wicked is that which purges and purifies the righteous. As Isaiah would reflect when he says, Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, uh, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin. In metallurgy we understand when we're Melting down metal, there's a dross of the impurities that comes to the top of which must be drawn off and what's left is the pureness of the metal. The illustration is used by Job when he says, when he hath tried me, when he has purified me, then I will come forth as gold. The dross of my life is gone. Isaiah had now been purged of all of his dross. He is purified and fit for heavenly worship and for his earthly service. And so then the question comes, who will go for us? And he had now been prepared. He had seen the glory of God. His life was now fit and he could but respond. I will go. Send me. Here am I. He says. The experience of the presence of God is integral to true service. And when we come into the presence of God in true worship, worshiping Him in the beauty and the radiancy of His holiness, that is what's motivating for us in the true service in the world in our earthly ministry. Living life here on earth for the glory of God boils down to these two principles of life worshiping Him in the beauty of holiness, and then secondly, serving Him faithfully in what He's called us to do here on earth in our short time. As one writer said, quote, significantly, this commitment to service occurred after the removal of guilt and not in order to it. Far too frequently, serving the Lord has suffered as a kind of penance with a view of increasing favor with God. This kind of guilt-motivated service leads to drudgery and burnout. Being conscious of grace and consumed with the sight of the sovereign Christ, however, generates happy service that may very well lead to physical and even emotional fatigue, but never to spiritual innervation. See, when we see God as He is revealed, everything in life is put in its proper context. 
God is on the throne. He is ruling over all. He always has been. He is now and He always will be. So whatever you and I are struggling with today, the answer to it is to see more of God. To experience His holiness. To see His glory. To hear of the heavenly worship. And to sense His divine presence. When you can really do that to the extent that you sense yourself and you humble yourself, everything about you will change. I do not believe that those experiences come apart from prayer. And I believe they most often come when you are on your knees. What we need is God's kingdom to come more fully into our lives. But God's kingdom will never come where His name is not hallowed. Isaiah's experience is very similar to John on the island of Patmos. And here is John, and he, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a loud voice like that of a trumpet, and he hears, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I turned to see the voice, he says, and having saw it, he saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment, down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair are white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were of fine brass, as refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its brightness and strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, who was dead, Behold, I am alive forever. Amen. This is Jesus. This can be our experience as well. I can tell you about it, but it's not going to fit unless you experience it with faith. I can tell you about St. Paul's, but you're not going to sense it unless you go there. You've got to get to the throne. You've got to see His glory. You've got to see Him high and lifted up. And you've got to sense His holiness and hear the thundering voice of the seraphim and see with sensory overload the sight and the sound and feel the shaking in your bones. And you've got to stop looking around and start looking up. Stop looking at all the troubles down here because the answer to all the troubles down here is found up there. You've got to stop looking inwardly with self-dependence and self-reliance. We all today just need to look up and see the Lord high and lifted up, lofty, and whose train fills the temple. Holy, holy. Holy. This mysterious hallowed be thy name our father
a gracious and merciful Father. Hallowed be thy name in this your temple. Thy kingdom come in our lives, bringing us more under the lordship and reign of Jesus Christ, subduing all of our enemies, our sins, our wicked heart. putting to death the old man, bringing alive the new man in Christ that we might thrive so that your will will be done here on earth in our lives as we go to serve our great King as it's done perfectly by those angels which are in heaven. Give us this day that which we need and forgive us of all of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory and the kingdom and the honor and the majesty, all the holiness, the one who is worthy to be praised. And from your throne emanates this holy light. May you work in all of our hearts today. Whatever the struggles are, give us a sense of your presence, a sense of your glory, a sense that you're on the throne in all of our circumstances, our struggles, trials, worries, anxieties, and all of our weaknesses, that you are near and you have cleansed us in the blood of Christ and you have fit us for your service. May we rejoice and be glad in it. In the name of the Lord Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was living and who was dead and who now is alive forevermore. In his name we pray. Amen.